Welcome back to Zach and Brian Watch the Watchmen. Uh, Even though we were just in your ears last week, it's been a while since we've recorded an episode. So, Zach, how are you? I'm doing well. Yeah, we um, we've mentioned this on the show that we had the benefit of getting some screeners from HBO, and so we've been recording far ahead of you guys seeing these episodes. And uh, (laughs) I know a friend of the show, friend in real life, Matthew Malikov, has been upset that we ask things that. PDpedia clearly answers, um, but you know we recorded these earlier, so sorry about that, Matt. Um, and sort of on that note, we we took a little bit of time this week and just caught up a bit on some PDpedia stuff. And so, is there anything on the PDpedia that you particularly uh, thought was interesting or colored the way you see the show, anything like that? Um, I mean, you know, I guess we we kind of already talked a little bit about the. Um the stuff about technology and how technology is perceived in the Watchmen universe. And, you know, right. there, that was, I think, in some of the stuff from the first episode. Um, and I don't want to get away from the PDPedia stuff right away as we just like start talking about it. But you brought to my attention some additional information in the liner notes for the Watchmen vinyl, the soundtrack. So there are three volumes being released of this. Yeah. This is just the first volume. It's called Sons of Pale Horse. Uh, sorry, yes. The, ba- the band is called Sons of Pale Horse. The, al- I, the album is influenced by the Rorschach Journal. Uh, it's just the same thing that's on Spotify and Apple Music. It's just presented in this really interesting way. But there's this right. long liner notes, and you know c- you can talk about that, Zach. Yeah, well, I thought that, that – I mean, there's some stuff in there that's really interesting about um... – about Lori and Dan, but I thought one of the really interesting things was the it's written from the perspective of the band members kind of recollecting on their lives. And there's a, a bit where it talks about kind of the technology purge of the, of kind of like the late eighties, early nineties and how um, it, I got the impression that they would launch technology into space to kind of get rid of it. Yes. <laughs> which is wild and it talked about uh you know failed uh software company microsoft <laughs> um which is really funny so i just th- i think that that's really interesting um i i think it's interesting how we i guess like where the watchman show is we're kind of they're kind of coming out of that and technology you know it doesn't really seem that far behind where we are now even though you know they're not using a lot of common things like cell phones and things that we would you know take for granted but it, it it is interesting how they don't seem that as a society far behind us um and maybe in some ways they're actually better because they maybe don't have the uh, degree of like social media <laughs> that we have right. i can only imagine what the conversations on the nascent message boards in the watchman universe about <laughs> like the american hero story stuff yeah. <laughs> is like yeah. um yeah, and so in those liner notes, and then there's also a, a fair amount on PDpedia about this, 
we get a little bit more about sort of what happened with Laurie and Dan. Um, in so there, there's a there's a document uh, that is uh, I gotta find out what it's called. Here, I already have it open. It's called um, interrogation redactions, and it's it's basically them talking to Laurie the day that she and Dan are arrested, and you get you find out that they were no longer a couple um, when. So they kind of ask her why in an indirect way, and she says he wanted kids, I wanted guns, <laughs> which is a pretty uh, a pretty telling answer. But they are essentially stopping. Uh, they they go get, get together for one last job to stop Tim McVeigh from bombing Oklahoma City, um, which is you know another interesting part of this show is that. They're not afraid to. They're not afraid to mix reality with fiction here, and it would have been really easy to just have them had stop had them stop a a terrorist attack anywhere, but to specifically make it Oklahoma City and the person who actually, you know, what was behind it. I don't know how I feel about that. In some ways, it's a little bit cheesy in some ways i kind of appreciate it what do you think about that that mixing there i mean i think it's fine i think that i mean watchmen has always kind of been about um this um you know kind of historical fiction type thing um this reimagining and i think you know we had kind of already speculated i think um on whether or not you know even things like 9-11 happened in this universe or something. And, um, you know, I think basing it in Oklahoma, um, tying them to the Oklahoma City bomber is maybe a little on the nose, but the fact that it's being explored in kind of the supplemental material rather than being on the forefront in the show, maybe blunt, you know, kind of blunts that a little bit. Um, I, I'm like generally pretty fine with it. I think it is more effective than if they had done just some kind of like generic terrorist attack, actually. Okay, interesting. Um, let's see. Is there anything else in the PDPedia that really requires our attention? Like we said, at the end of the season, we'll do a sort of a, a bigger dive. But is there anything else you want us to talk about? Um, you know, I, I thought that some of the most interesting things weren't necessarily like the um, the kind of pseudo official documents but things like um the uh, extra dimensional anxiety and you pamphlet uh-huh. um i thought that that was really interesting um the things that are more like in universe um media like that and the the ad for nostalgia um yeah i i thought i think some of this stuff has the tendency to maybe be a little overwritten in yes. some ways, um, especially like the memorandums and things like that. Um, whereas I feel like those kind of in-universe media type things are a little bit more fun, playful, um, a little more indirect and less on the nose. So, I mean, this definitely feels like a very lost element of the show. Yeah, with sort of but all I mean, the all the secondary sources, things that sure. aren't essential to to enjoying the show, but give you more information. Right, right, but it's also like an inherently Watchmen thing. You know, this is the back this matter. Is the back of the matter, books. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is very cool that they're doing that. And you know, even Doomsday Clock has been doing that to a much less successful degree. I think that this is somewhere in between 
you know, the highs of the original Watchmen's back matter and, and then the Doomsday Clock back matter. Um, I'm just surprised at how much of it there is. And I, I imagine I would not be surprised if this stuff all gets collected into some kind of, um, you know, dossier or something kind of not unlike the, like the Twin Peaks dossiers that they did right. for the, right. around the third season. I, I could definitely see them doing something like that. I may or may not be downloading these to bind them in case, uh, in case uh. it doesn't happen. <laughs> so we shall see. But anyway, we're not here to talk about PDpedia. We're here to talk about the sixth episode of the uh, of the season, which is called "This Extraordinary Being." Does this reference ring a bell to you? Um, no. Should it? No. I mean, I, I I've been I've been looking. You know, there there are lots of when I like, for instance, you know, before I saw the third episode, I knew it was called "She Was Killed by Space Junk." When you Google that, it instantly pops up that this is a Devo reference, right? Um, when you Google this extraordinary being, all you're seeing is Watchmen stuff, essentially. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, a- and I'm looking on like a wiki, and there's no, you know, kind of like notes about the title or anything. So, right. um, yeah, I don't know. The only thing I could find, which, and I don't know if this is anything, there's a book. Um, called Melmoth the Wanderer and uh it's a um let's see here I'll get a little more information about the book it looks like it's a um some sort of uh perhaps fantasy novel and there's a quote in there that uh I felt a, va- a vacillation I cannot describe between throwing myself into the power of the Inquisition or the power of this extraordinary being more formidable, perhaps, than all the Inquisitors on Earth from Madrid to Goa. Doesn't really mean anything, um, but that's the only that's the only realistic I found. Although it, it is a a pretty easy, it's pretty hard to Google phase a phrase rather because yeah. it is so common. Um, so yeah. Anyway, uh, this episode begins with uh, and, and we should say. We're not going to go as beat by beat through this episode for a couple of reasons, um, but we are going to um, we're going to talk more for general themes. But it's important to discuss, you know, the idea that this episode begins with we just we see Angela just in the in the minutes before she is fully taken over by the nostalgia that she uh, ingested. We've been told oh, it's a man. lethal dose. Love to be taken over by nostalgia. Yeah. Well, I mean... <laughs> Happens to me every day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they they talk about the drug and sort of what it does. And basically, it, it like, it physically takes memories from your brain and, it, and like, implants them onto microchips. Whether it copies... I think it copies them. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't, like, remove them. And then you swallow them and you get back into this. And, you know, what I loved about this episode's visual style is that it very much mimics a dream in that some things are in color and the rest of the dreams in black and white a door will open out into the middle of a street there's a piano player on the street a fair amount uh and and most notably we see sort of angela pop in in place of will at various times Mm -hmm. and you, you get the sense that 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 those are maybe the moments of most lucidity for her um but it's a really effective visual way to tell the story. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, this is one of the like most visually and I guess like cinematically interesting episodes of the series so far. I think maybe the most actually by a long shot. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with that. There there are a couple of things that feel like they're going to be one thing and turn to be something else. So the one shot the one shot in particular I'm thinking of is when Hooded Justice jumps through the window of um of that guy's store and it 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 pauses like the matrix almost and you get a 360 of of him like you know jumping through the window and you're trying to figure out why is why are they doing this and it turns out that's Angela being lucid for a second like just everything comes to a stop mm-hmm. and uh you know it was just a very interesting choice there are a lot of interesting choices made here it it is way. interesting and uh, you know i you brought that scene up um I wanted to talk a little bit about how that scene sort of mirrors, which this is kind of going to get ahead of a lot of things here, getting the cart before the horse, but that scene mirrored in some ways a sequence from American Hero, Hero Story yes. earlier in the series. Yes, and, and, I, and I, have a whole, I have a whole thought about that. Yeah. Um, but I guess we should talk about sort of we should me, we should talk about the big thing <laughs> yes the big thing is that um will reeves the the grandfather of angela was hooded justice and i have to give a shout out i, I texted zach a couple of days ago and i was like somebody figured this out uh his name on twitter is mr tyler j brown so what up tyler Congratulations, you figured this out. I don't know how you did that. Uh, apparently, a lot of people have been talking about this online, um, but I, I have not been as hashtag online with this show. I've been just kind of enjoying experiencing it in our own little bubble. Yes. Um, but so people figured it out, I guess. I they did, they did. And it's really interesting because, so coming into the Watchmen TV show, in like my I don't think it was ever explicitly stated in Watchmen. And so I can't I don't remember where I got this idea, but I had always had the kind of like understanding that Hooded Justice was meant to be a a black character. Oh really? Um, yeah, for I don't know where I had this from. And so when um the American Hero story presented him as white i remember like when i saw that i thought oh well maybe you know maybe they're just that's interesting that they ran with that because i i i need to go back i really don't know it had to have been in the back matter something in the back matter uh from watchmen but in my mind i've always kind of assumed that he was a black man under the hood um and so when this reveal happened i thought ah very interesting because then it it gets into kind of the literal whitewashing of the American Hero Story TV show. Yeah, so it, in the back matter of the Watchmen comic, in um, oh, what's Hollis Mason's book? Uh, is it Behind the Cowl? Under, under the Hood. Un, under the Hood. Behind the Cowl is a Batman thing. Uh, under the Hood. Um, in there, it supposes that he was a, that he was German. And that his body was found on the shore in Boston. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we see that scene in a previous episode of American Hero Story. Yes. 
And so um, that's, I don't know if, if, if I took that as gospel, but I just, you know, obviously the hangman look has has a an African-American connotation to it, you know, because they would be the victims of of this. And the the total hidden nature of the skin would also, you know, be a, uh, a clue just because no one else dressed that way, right? So what's different yeah. about this person that would require them to hide everything? But I don't know if you yeah. remember this. In the first episode we did, I said how when, we, when the show began and we saw the Will um, – it's not Will Reeves. It's the – the um, the sheriff. The it, it's something uh, Reeves. Yes, uh, How, Buster, not Buster. Something. Oh, it's in the. It's in the. Hold on, let me pull it up. It's in the um, Pedipedia stuff. Yeah, uh, but anyway, I thought that, that uh, was Marshall. Marshall Reeves. Yeah, I thought I that that the Marshall's his title. But anyway, I thought that was the, his name too, though. Oh, was it? <laughs> oh, doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't. Oh, my kid. Bass. Bass. Bass Reeves. Reeves. Marshall it. Bass Reeves. Yeah. So um, I thought that was a hooded justice. I thought we were watching a hooded justice newsreel. Uh huh. And so it's interesting that hooded justice was inspired by Bass Reeves. And so we, we did see hooded justice in that scene in the form of a child will. Um, but it's an interesting and a really well done, like, future call, you know, calling something that wouldn't come out for another few weeks. Uh, it was right. very, very smart. Um, but yeah, so, um, what did you think of, of that reveal? Was it, obviously we were a little bit surprised, but do you think from a storytelling perspective, it's a good one? Oh, I think it's great. I think it's like the best, (laughs) I think it's the best thing. (laughs) Um, so I guess to kind of preface this a little bit too, getting like in the meta narrative of this, it, this episode comes at like the best time i guess almost right after um an old interview with alan moore resurfaced recently um i think the interview was from like 08 or 09 so it uh, a lot of people i think kind of wrongly attributed it to as a response to this show but it it wasn't It, it preceded it by a lot but some have actually said that maybe uh Lindelof was inspired by that quote to then make this show um, because he compares uh, superhero films to Birth of a Nation and actually calls Birth of a Nation the first superhero movie, um, which is fascinating. <laughs> it is. It's it's provocative, uh, yeah. but it's certainly fascinating. Yeah. Um just wild stuff you can't you can't make it up um the other thing that i thought was really important from this episode and we'll get into sort of the uh, the events of the episode in a minute but we find out that the the woman who is in this episode june uh who eventually marries will uh that she was the baby he found outside of tulsa in the pilot as well yeah that was really interesting so um, we have talked a little bit, and I, I've I've specifically talked about this a lot in my um, in my written reviews for Multiversity about the Superman connection to this show, and yeah. about how you know that 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 scene very much reflected a um, you know as a take on the Superman origin, and then we get the the Clark farm having a meteor crash on it um, was a very Superman thing. In this episode, we get. 
an actual Action Comics number one scene. Yeah. Where someone's yeah. Doing it. And I realized that Will is on both sides of the Superman origin because not only is he sent away from disaster, but he finds a baby wrapped in an American flag, which is essentially what, you know, for all intents and purposes, what Clark is wrapped in when he lands on Earth. Yeah. And so he's on both sides of that Superman narrative. It's just very interesting how Doomsday Clock is all about Superman interacting with the Watchmen stuff, but this show is is hinting at it a little bit. Yeah, I would say even a lot. It's pretty, like, I mean, it it was subtle up to this point, I think, but this is, like, extremely overt, having actual Action Comics number one show up in the show. Um, Someone else mentioned that even Will's last name of Reeves is yeah. a Superman reference. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, no, I, I enjoyed that stuff as well. Um, so while we're talking about that, that thing crashing on the farm in the beginning of last episode, I did want to shout out to our multiversity brethren, Benjamin Birdie, who theorized that Lady True saw uh, Vite's message and that this is her bringing him back to Earth. That he's crashing onto the farm. Uh, bringing... Vite back to Earth. Vite back to Earth? Yeah. So that's happening in the future? So, so or, we're, no, so wait. what we're seeing with Vite is slightly in the past. Oh, okay, I see what you mean. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I believe it or not. Just, it's just yeah, I don't know if I buy that, but it is an interesting theory. Uh, I think it's something else. Well, see, like, I almost got the impression... I don't... It's not really clear. I almost got the impression that the stuff on the farm was happening in the past and something that landed on that farm. I I got the impression that that farmland is where Lady True is now building the Millennium Clock. Well, but they knew her and they said, you're yeah. building that big uh, thing she, or whatever. Yeah, I guess that's true. But yeah. the way that it was just like, I guess that's why it was like unclear because it, the way that that scene was sequenced, it almost looked like a passage of time was happening sure, on the sure. farm where stuff was being built and constructed on the farm. Right, right. But I couldn't tell if that was suppo- mean, supposed to mean that or just transitioning to a separate location. Right. Um, so I thought that was a little unclear. I haven't been really sure on that. But yeah, I I kind of think that the crash was something else, but. But it's fun to speculate about this stuff. It is. Yeah, the only thing is I just don't know what Vite crashing on that land would – like why would she need to own that land to collect Vite? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, anyway, <laughs> uh, a couple of sort of general notes about the show – about this episode, and then we'll, we'll kind of dig into whatever you want to talk about. I want to talk about the music in this episode. Okay. It was by far my favorite episode in terms of how sound was used. Mm-hmm. Lots of music and dialogue kind of blends together and gets deconstructed. And again, just creates a very surreal dreamlike state, which I think works so well for this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of songs that were, that were played, uh, Smoke It's In Your Eyes, My Echo, My Shadow, and Me. There was also some, some jazz drumming. That was reminiscent of uh, I don't know if anyone out there saw oh, what was that movie called with um the kid playing jazz drums with J Jonah Jameson in it. God damn it! 
Mm, I don't know. I'll think of it. Um, but anyway, I I loved. To me, this was the least traditional use of music on the show so far, and I I thought it really helped the sort of the the dreamlike nature of it. And then the only other thing I really wanted to talk about before we get into whatever you want to talk about was I want to talk about the American Hero story to reality sort of transition here. So a lot of people have commented that the American Hero story looks a lot like Zack Snyder's Watchmen in mm-hmm. terms of the, the graphic violence and all of that. And when we've seen violence on the show in the present, which we haven't seen that much of, it has certainly not been that stylized. And so when we're looking on the, these past instances of violence... I expected a more naturalistic approach. And it's certainly more naturalistic than American Hero Story is. But it's still pretty heightened. And I wonder, is that the physical nostalgia? That like when we look back on things, we just see them more cinematically? And do you think that that's the point? Or do you think that there was a different artistic intent for having the, the fighting look similar? I don't know. I actually... Well, I think for one thing, there's only so many ways that you can portray violence on film or, you know, in in that way, there's kind of like a visual language of fighting for the most part. Like you can do interesting things with that, with like camera work and things like that. But I I think there's only so many ways to depict fighting. Um, I do feel like there was still kind of a divide a little bit between like the big brawl between uh William and those uh clan members in that back room compared to the parallel scene in the grocery store in American Hero Story that did feel much more um hyper violent i guess um just with you know all of the the very like uh again kind of like playing with that uh the language of film and and the way that um you know blood was used very copiously um in the in the American Hero Story segment and just just the just the heightened hyperviolence that reminded me of you know say like in Watchmen the scene with um what's the the like crime boss's name I can't remember um in, in jail with Watchmen, I'm with with Watchmen with Rorschach. <laughs> oh, I that know whole, what you mean. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember his name, but that whole sequence where you know, like his like henchman gets his hands yep. sawed uh-huh. off or yep. whatever, mm-hmm. and just like, uh, you know, Night Owl and Silk Spectre are going through just like snapping people's arms in ninety degree angles <laughs> and and just wild stuff like that. Um. I, I did still see a little bit of a, of a distinction there. Oh well, yeah, but but it, it wasn't as I expected it to be really naturalistic for whatever reason. Mm, yeah, um, but again, I, it's not really a complaint. It's just, uh, I, and I, I do think that perhaps some of it is that is the idea of it being mythologized in your head. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, and also, I mean, like the costumes too. I feel like heighten the the nature of it too and help with the mythologizing. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. Um, 
All right. So what are a few things you want to talk about? I, I'm sorry. I just interrupted you before you even started. I did want to say we have not mentioned yet that uh, I don't know if it's pronounced Hoven or Jovan uh, Adepo plays Will on this episode, who you and I saw on The Leftovers season two and who is a just does a, does a really fantastic job in this episode. Yeah, agreed. Um, man, I, there's like a lot to say, but also I, it can all just be summed up in just like how powerful this episode was to me. There were multiple episodes, I mean, multiple moments in the episode where I was kind of like on the verge of weeping at just how sad and tragic Will's story is, the way he is used and abused and just the insurmountable weight of everything that he has to face um, in terms of like the realities of racism in that period of America um, and how it has like clearly not gotten better in the present day of the show. And like, there were just multiple moments that stick out to me. One, um, you know, where he is kind of like, a beat cop and he sees a man throw a like Molotov cocktail or something into a Jewish bakery and he brings the guy in and is just dismissed completely. And then is subsequently um, collected by his fellow policemen and hung not to death, but um, to, 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 be taught to, a, to be taught a lesson to be taught a lesson yeah yeah which is kind of his origin as hooded justice but um that sequence um the sequence where he comes in and finds his son um angela's mother uh, i mean father um painting his eyes white because he's seen his father doing that um to give the impression that it is a white man under the hood um which is just fascinating and also like really tragic um, because that's essentially like the dissolution of his marriage and his family from that point on. Um, and then the third point I think is, and this is again, kind of, I talked about this a little bit in the last episode, the kind of um, watchmanization, I guess like it's like the real watchman point where the Republic serial villain plot comes in, where you find out that this organization, um, the Cyclops, which, um, side note, we did kind of mention that symbol of the eye um, being on the wall in the 7K yep. warehouse in episode five. Um, but we find out that they are using subliminal film technology and kind of like a, a flashing light emitter to brainwash African-American people into turning on African-Americans, which like on paper sounds kind of goofy. It's very comic booky, but it's it also just like so tragic of an idea in light of just kind of, like real historical events. Um, I, I don't know. I think, I think that this episode is going to be really controversial for all the, it's going to piss the right people off. I think, yes, I agree. You know? yes, um, I agree. 
but you know whether or not you wherever you stand on you know whether or not this show needed to be made or um you know just the legacy of Watchmen I do think that this episode is going to be the one that is kind of the most important and the one that like sells the value of the show Yes, uh, I want to respond to a couple of things that you said and sort of just I mean, I'm not going to disagree with anything you're saying, but I, I want to just sort well, of if you want to, you can. That's fine. No, no, I'm not going to. Um, but I, I want to touch on a few things. First of all, I felt that Will part of what makes Will's story so tragic is that Will doesn't make he almost makes no decisions for himself. Yeah. In this entire episode. You know, you see he is basically pushed into being hooded justice by his wife. Whether they're married at that point or not, I'm not sure, but, you know, by by June. Sure, sure. You know, she pushes him into it. Then he's kind of pushed into the Minutemen by by Captain Metropolis. Oh, I forgot to talk about that stuff. Gosh, that was the worst. Yeah, I mean, he's he's such a scumbag in this. Yeah. Um, And then he is subsequently, like, basically abandoned by Captain Metropolis in his in his time of most need when he figures out what's going on with the, um, with the Cyclops folks, Captain Metropolis is just basically like, not a problem. It's a black problem. We're not black. Um, and so there's, and then, you know, he gets his, his life taken away from him essentially because is his wife and child, because he decides be, Basically, because he's gone too far into something he did not want to get into in the first place, mm-hmm. um, and so you just see his entire life taken away by by him doing what other people asked him to do, right? And that's just such a tragic story. Um, I also think that the implication of Hood of Justice being black and being either bisexual or gay adds a whole other layer to it in terms of the scandal that would have been present for him uh, being outed. Um, You know, uh, obviously society was not very accepting of, of homosexuality or, or any sort of deviation from standard heterosexuality in the time that this story is taking place, but especially not uh, interracial relationships and homosexual relationships. Just a, you know, that's a real powder keg there. And I thought that the show did a really good job of not presenting Will as being, how can I put this? I didn't feel like he was overly conflicted about that part of his life. Yeah, he he didn't seem to be. And that was a really interesting choice. I I don't know if that's I don't know. It just it, it it was an interesting choice to make him to make him just just not overly conflicted with that part. You know, I mean, he's he's lying to his wife. He's he's, you know, not faithful to her. There the, there are, those are problematic things in a healthy relationship, but you would think that in telling this story so much of it would have been the anguish over being a gay man in the 1930s, and none of that's really there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, do you want to talk more about Captain Metropolis and that whole era? I mean, he just like sucks so much. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, 
He's the worst. He is the worst. Um, which it also, you know, it's interesting talking about how this show is going to color readings of the original Watchmen, but it does, you know, now I'll never be able to read that crime buster sequence in Watchmen again, the same way. Um, because right. I think in that, you know, he's just presented it as this kind of like, you know, very affable, just kind of well-meaning, um, guy who's kind of you know past his prime trying to get the old gang together and you almost kind of feel sorry for him in that way i think in the original watchman but now it's just like oh no you actually like actively are a horrible person um and so it, it colors that in a in a way that um you know may may have not been alan morn's intention at all um but it, it's interesting yeah, and um, again, I think that the show was not at all hiding its ambitions for that character, mm-hmm. but it didn't make him a mustache-twirling villain either. No, yeah, it didn't. Um, one note I wanted to say from that sequence, too, is in at the press conference where they introduce Hooded Justice, where Will tries to talk about the... Um, the uh the cyclops he's he's interrupted and they basically point to Moloch being the bad guy but then they also pivot to a an advertisement for a bank um for the national bank and yeah. that poster we saw in the 7k safe house in the first episode mm-hmm. and uh yeah. just another nice bit of tying it all together yeah, it it is. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I I don't really feel equipped to talk about a lot of these issues. Um, you know, this show's getting like really heavily at systemic white supremacy, um, of which I, you know, have benefited from, and <laughs> and ever, so like I I'm like the least equipped person to really talk about this, but I am like i guess i am anticipating the the conversations that it's gonna start and um you know whether or not do i expect a a tv show to be the thing that brings these issues to the forefront like no of course not um but i i think that the like cast and people who are behind this show are, you know, like very well intentioned and, um, I, I'm glad it exists is what I'll say. Agreed. Yeah. There's one last scene I want to talk about, um, sort of specifically, which is the scene where Will busts up the, um, the headquarters of the Cyclops. And there's a line in the film within the show, the the Bass Reeves film, where Bass Reeves is encouraged to string up the uh, the sheriff that was uh that was the the, the villain of that episode. Mm-hmm. And he says, No, mob justice will not be uh will not be done today. And not that what Will does is exactly mob justice, but we don't see him put his trust in the law, which is the 
the uh, the tag on that line. Like, mob justice will not be served today. Put put trust in the law. And the reason why is because he's been he's been proven that the law does not is not on his side, right? Mm-hmm. He is he is so outside of the sphere of people that the law is trying to protect that he has to go outside the law. And that to me also felt like a heartbreaking sequence. Just this idea of this person who built their lives around doing what is right to be to have to stoop to I mean, look, no one's going to get mad at killing Nazis, right? But you understand what I'm saying. Like, just you, you you, saw the ideals basically disappear throughout the episode to the point where he can just go and murder and burn a bunch of people and do so without without even really debating it in his head. This is what he has mm-hmm. to do. Yeah. It's just another sad scene. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a sad episode. It is. It is. Um I was discussing with our pal Greg Matasevich if if it was the saddest episode if if last episode when we just watched was the saddest episode of Watchmen and he said he thinks it it was and I said to him well expect that to be changed <laughs> so um cuz I I I did feel that the um the looking glass episode was very sad for different reasons as well it was sad and if oh man the the only I think critique I could put against this episode is i hate that it was a whole episode where we're left wondering still what has happened to looking glass you know he's his fate is still up in the air it's not and, addressed in this issue or yeah, this episode and vite as well as we, we didn't get any vite stuff this issue. yeah no vite you said issue two <laughs> oh, <I did. laughs> well you know uh, we're comics we're, a, we're comics, we're comics podcasters yeah. you know this yeah. is this is outside of our regular uh sphere of, of what yeah. we do what we do um, is what we do but yeah first first non-vite episode yeah um is there anything else from the episode that you do you really want to get to not that i can think of um great episode though i i hope it gets all the the accolades that that are coming to it i just looked down at my notes and realized we didn't talk about a gigantic thing <laughs> oh we did uh, we didn't talk at all about how will you then used the mesmerism that was oh i thought about that the african-american yeah. population of new york to get judd to kill himself yeah because he he essentially he he takes a prototype or whatever the device from the warehouse and yeah. i would assume then kind of reverse engineers it or or you know maybe perfects it into this flashlight device which explains the flickering lights that we saw in the first episode um which yeah that scene was pretty chilling and just kind of goes it goes to show just how far his character has come over you know these 50 60 years since that point yeah and uh you know the conversation that he and Judd have is fascinating mm-hmm. you know he tells Judd you have a, a clan robe in your closet he says that's my grandfather's my legacy and Judd says, I'm trying to protect you people. You don't know what's really going on here. Which, which again, goes to what um, Keen says last episode, which is that he and Judd were working together to keep the peace, even though they're seemingly on totally different sides of the issue. You know, um, that they're working together to keep the peace, which, which is an interesting 
I, I still don't know how much I believe that. Uh, I don't know how somebody working for the seventh K can really have the, like the greater good in mind, you know? Um, but it's interesting. And, uh, it's also interesting how almost everything that Will said in the second episode, when I said episode, not issue, uh, where, where he's being interrogated by Angela, where he says like, I strung up your, your chief of police. That's not totally incorrect right yeah um, it's not and he says i did it with psychic powers also not, not totally, totally yeah exactly you know so maybe and, he actually is dr manhattan that was also. my point <laughs> is that is that maybe 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 the reason he's 106 years old is because he's been imbued with dr manhattan's uh something or other yeah but yeah just uh a, a really really fascinating episode and uh one i was i was very happy to watch a second time for this podcast. Um, any closing remarks before we get uh, forget out of here? No, I was going to uh, look up what the name of the next episode is. I'm trying to find it. I have it right here. Uh, okay. Next episode is called An Almost Religious Awe. Hmm. So we shall see what that episode brings uh, one week from now. If you want to find us uh we're we're tweeting about the show we're using the hashtag hashtag uh, z and b watchman you can tweet at either one of us individually he's at wilker fox i'm at brian needs a nap uh i'm also reviewing the show in print for multiversity so feel free to um to comment on that and uh yeah we have th- three episodes left now and uh i can't wait to see what's gonna happen yeah i i just have no idea where it's going at all. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So remember, until next time, uh, who watches The Watchmen? Zach and Brian.